Would you stand up as I read from God's word? Joshua 24, 14 through 21. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your forefathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will dwell, you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve other gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. And verses 22 through 28. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, the stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. This is God's word. If you have Bibles open, I invite you to keep them open as we pray together this morning. God, we are grateful uh, that you speak to us through your word, even when that word is hard. We're grateful when you speak truth to us, even when it is hard for us to receive. As we open the book of Joshua, in the very last chapter of that book this morning, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would do just that, that you would speak, and that you would soften our hearts to receive this word. Cause us this morning, Lord, to rely on you and you alone. The grace that you have poured out for us in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we wrapped up our lengthy study of the Gospel of John, which we began way back in November of 2019. And now that we've finished that two-year study, I'd like to take just a moment here at the beginning of the sermon this morning to let you know where we're going next. 
as we continue to gather and sit under the authority of Scripture together. So, Lord willing, this is our plan for preaching, which will carry us through the fall and through the year of 2022. Uh, Over the next couple of weeks, we'll have a few sermons that we call one-offs. That's what Bruce and I call them. Uh, That is, sermons that are not connected to a particular series or a particular study. It's a chance for us to preach on texts that the Lord has been using in our own lives, which is what's happening this morning, or in the life of the church, or to preach in response to particular needs that have arisen in the church. We'll be doing that over the next few weeks. That will lead us right up to the missions conference, which you've heard about this morning, and the preachers who will be joining us Uh, during the missions conference for those two Sundays. After that, beginning in October, we will work through the book of Jonah, which will carry us through to Advent, where we'll examine the opening chapters of Matthew and Luke as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. And all of this leads us up to the first of 2022, when we will begin our next girthy study of the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm telling you all of this for two reasons. First, because I want you to know that Pastor Bruce and Pastor Eric and I care deeply about the work of preaching and the way that God has said that He works through the teaching and application of His revealed Word. We plan for and pray earnestly for the future and what will take place in this room and in this pulpit because we are confident that this time and in this space, the Lord has set apart for the assembly of His people to sit under the teaching of His Word, and that that is a cornerstone of His strategy to raise up mature and faithful believers. So that's the first reason. The second reason is because I hope that you'll write these things down, that you'll make them part of your personal study and family worship. We want you to get the most out of this time that we share together, and that involves some preparation on your part, advanced work on your part, like tilling the soil in your garden before you put down the seeds in order to have a bigger harvest. You have time to get ready for these things that are ahead. You have time to read and get into the book of Jonah, to begin a personal study of the book of 2 Corinthians, which will deepen the impact of our collective time in that book next year. I'm already praying about those studies and for each of you with eager expectation that our church family will be blessed as we work through these books together. So that's the plan. But this morning... We're looking at a passage from the very end of the book of Joshua. Joshua, if you aren't familiar, is the sixth book in the Bible. It tells the story of the people of Israel's conquest over the land that God had promised to give them centuries earlier. At that time, centuries before the passage we're reading takes place, God brought a man named Abraham to this land and told him that his descendants would one day live there and enjoy the Lord's blessing and abundance. So the book of Joshua is the story of God keeping that promise and showing His faithfulness to the people of Israel. But when the people arrive in this land that God has promised to give them at the beginning of the book of Joshua, they cross over a river and they walk into this land. They see that it is already inhabited by many people who do not feel like giving it away, to say the least. But earlier, God had promised that He would judge those people for things like child sacrifice and other wicked practices that were taking place in that land. And now, in the arrival of the people of Israel, that judgment has come. So the first half of the book of Joshua is the story of that conquest, as God gave His people victory after victory over city after city. 
the people of the land were armed and well-trained for war. They lived in fortified cities, and they were ready for battle. Israel, meanwhile, was a ragtag nation of former slaves who had spent the last 40 years wandering in the desert. Yet in battle after battle, God's people are given decisive victory because God keeps His promises, both to pour out wrath and blessing where He has said that He would. And now, after 20 years leading the people through the most thrilling and faith-testing years of their lives, Joshua is about to die, and he knows it. So he summons the people to a place called Shechem to address them one last time. Joshua reminds them of the grace that God has shown them, how he has been faithful to them, beginning way back when he called Abraham to faith out of idolatry and to a relationship with himself. And then he goes, goes on to remind these people of all that he has done since, of all that the Lord has done for them since, from Abraham on through the generations. And Joshua, I think, has even chosen this very location for that reason. Shechem, the, the place where he is addressing these people in Joshua 24, is actually the very first place that God brought Abraham. And it is where, it is the literal physical place where God had said to Abraham, this land I will give to you and your descendants. So even the place that Joshua has chosen to address these people for the very last time in his whole life was designed to be a reminder to them that God has been faithful to them. Generations, centuries of God's promise-keeping are sort of encapsulated in just the location that Joshua has chosen for this final address. And his final message for them is simple. In light of all of that, in light of everything that we have seen together, in light of all that we remember about God and His activity and faithfulness to us, his message to Joshua is this, God has been faithful to you, so your lives should be a response to that faithfulness. And though it sounds simple, it will be harder than these people are prepared for. Because something Joshua already knows, and they haven't figured out yet, is that a relationship with God, faithfulness to God that he's calling them to, demands everything every single day. It demands everything every single day. That truth is why Joshua has gathered the people why he speaks to them the way he does here at the end of his life. A relationship with God and faithfulness to him demands everything, every single day. We see that, or we begin to see that in the repetition of the phrase, serve the Lord, that is scattered throughout this passage. In fact, 14 times in this short passage, the word serve is used. That should make our ears prick up a little bit. In Hebrew, the, the same word, for serve is actually the root of the word slave. This is not a call to pay the Lord lip service, but to give their whole lives to Him and to the work that He is doing in the world. He says specifically in verse 14, now therefore, or in light of everything we've just said, in light of all of the, the examples of God's faithfulness that I've just given you, in light of all of that, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and faithfulness. Now, right off the bat, this instruction to fear the Lord may sound like a strange thing for Him to say. 
the people might have asked him, just as some of us might ask along with them, but doesn't God love these people? Hasn't he just spent generations proving how much he loves these people? Shouldn't, shouldn't their enemies fear him instead? But it's a command that's woven all over Scripture over and over and over again. God's people, the people of his love and affection are the ones that are told most often to fear the Lord. The reformer, Martin Luther, thought a lot about this. And over the course of his lifetime, he came to understand that there are two types of fear when it comes to the way that we relate to and understand the Lord. Two ways that someone might fear God. The first is what he called servile fear. It's the fear that a prisoner feels when he sits in a torture chamber. It is the fear of being hurt or of cruelty. And it's what typically comes to mind when we first think about fear. But the other type of fear that Luther understood or came to understand was what he called familial fear. Luther described this as the type of reverence and respect that a young, a young child has for their father or that they should have. It's not fear of being hurt, but an awe and an understanding that this person is not to be dealt with carelessly. It's the way that one acts towards someone who is not only of a higher station, but who is also the source of security and comfort and provision. Luther understood this distinction because early in his life, he feared the Lord with servile fear. He feared that God's anger would be unleashed against him for his sins, so he did everything he could to appease God and his anger. He spent hours and hours and hours in confession to the, to, the, to the point that even the priests were like, Martin, give it a rest. You're driving us crazy. He did extra penance just in case. He was so afraid that all of his days were consumed with his fear of God's retribution toward him if he didn't measure up, and he knew that he didn't, so he was afraid every day of God's retribution and wrath. But when Luther came to understand the gospel and the forgiveness that was given to him in Christ, he feared God in a new way. He saw with awe the God of the universe step down out of glory and take on flesh to live a sinless and humble life among people who owed to him their very breath and who then subjected him to torture and death because he allowed it and willed it to take place. He saw this God conquer the grip of death itself and then welcome sinners into new life and freedom from condemnation. And he began to fear God with familial fear, with awe and honor and a sense that the God of the universe who commands the authority over death itself is not one to be treated lightly. It's a holy fear that I think is captured perfectly in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever read those books. The children in those books, and everyone in those books, they don't fear cruelty from the great lion, Aslan. They don't fear him with servile fear, but with a holy reverence for one who they know has authority over everything that exists. The people of Israel have seen that majesty. They've seen that glory. They've seen the power of God firsthand and beheld his faithfulness toward him. And now Joshua is calling them to live and act accordingly. And that means to devote everything that they have to God every single day. That's the word that Joshua wants to leave these people with. But he knows it will be a hard word for them to keep. Even when they tell him in verses 16 through 18, 
Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, our house out of, out of slavery, and who did those great things in our sight and preserved us all the way that we went among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. It is a robust and thorough a commitment to serve the Lord and be faithful to Him. It's the perfect answer. Isn't it exactly what Joshua had just said and, and, and that he seemed to be driving them to understand and want them to commit themselves to? To, to? to live in response to all these things that God has done? And then here in this passage, they're kind of giving an accounting of all these things that God has done and saying, far be it from us that we would ever turn away from this God who has done these things for us and, and proven Himself faithfulness, faithful to us. It's exactly what Joshua had just told them to do. So we might expect him to say, smart move there. You ace the exam. You pass the test. But in verse 19, he replies, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. It is a sharp response and surely not the one that they were expecting. At first glance, it's a bizarre exchange, isn't it? Joshua says, serve God. And the people say, we will. And Joshua says, <laughs> who, do you, who do you think you are? You can't do it. I think what's happening here is that the people don't know what they're promising. They don't know what they're committing themselves to. They don't know that a relationship with God demands everything every single day. So Joshua's response to them is sharp. While discussing this passage with a friend last week, he told me that Joshua's response here reminded him of how Jesus' sharpest words were reserved for those who thought they had their act together and who did not doubt their ability to be faithful to God. I don't think that the problem here is that they are insincere. I don't think they're lying. There's nothing in this passage that suggests that they don't mean it when they say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. The problem is not a lack of desire to serve God. The problem is that they think they can and I think that's the heart of this passage and the reason that Joshua responds to them in the way that he does. He does not want them to say, we got this. We hear you, Joshua. It's a great idea. We can do it. He wants them to look at themselves and say, God, help us. We want to follow you, to honor you. We really do. But we know that you deserve perfection and that we will never measure up. Even our best days are shameful and filled with sin and that the only way we can be faithful to you is if you, in your mercy, bring it about. That is what Joshua wants these people to grasp and I think what this passage is here to help us understand. I was recently reading a book that was just published. It just came out. 
about the struggle against pornography among Christian men. It is a scourge, a plague among God-fearing men who fill churches just like this one every Sunday and who say with utter sincerity, just like the Israelites, I desire to serve the Lord, but who cannot shake addiction to this sin. And in the most moving, most compelling part of this little book, the author writes about the fact that Satan, who desires Christians to remain stuck in slavery to sin, that he does not fear the man who says with all their heart, I can do it. Satan does not fear that man. Even if he's sincere in his desire to break this habit of sin and serve the Lord, Satan does not fear that man. What he fears, the author writes, is a man shattered and stripped of his dreams, so devastated that all he has left is Jesus and who clings to Jesus alone. Joshua does not want the Israelites to live a single day thinking that they can do it, that they're strong enough to do it. Here, in the last days of his life, he confronts these people with a sharp word for them. He confronts them and he confronts us with two reasons that we ought to lean more on God's mercy than on our own strength to remain faithful to God. The first is that a relationship with God holds nothing back. Joshua indicates that when he tells them in verse 14 to serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. Those two words, sincerity and faithfulness, obviously they're significant. They're the way that Joshua describes what it means to come before the Lord and to live our lives for Him. So we do well to understand what he means when he says to serve the Lord in sincerity and faithfulness. The word translated here, sincerity, is used to describe both integrity of character and completeness. A sincere affection is both genuine and deeply held which is to say it is not superficial. It is not merely a matter of behavior, the veneer of affection, but a matter of the heart. Pastor John Piper has famously illustrated this point by talking about buying flowers for his wife on her birthday. He walks into the house with flowers for her, and she says, thank you so much. And if he replies by saying, Noel, today is your birthday. I had to do this. I, I, I was obligated to get you these flowers. Now, that would kind of ruin it, wouldn't it? The, the, the action of obedience, uh, or the action of affection, rather, is there, but it's kind of ruined because he's revealed that he, he, he didn't, there wasn't a heart behind it. It was just the veneer of affection. But if the desire of his heart is the joy of his wife, he will get her flowers out of his affection for her, even when it's not her birthday. What these people seem to misunderstand as Joshua speaks to them is that this calling to sincerity and joyful service is a calling for their hearts, not merely for their hands. It's not merely a call to reform their behavior, but to examine their hearts. And the word faithfulness conveys reliability, stability, and endurance. It's a lasting, persevering thing. It isn't diminished by time or circumstance in life. What Joshua is getting at here is that faithfulness to the Lord is comprehensive, and it means to give him everything. 
to give God not only righteous acts and behavior that is in accordance with the way that he commands his people to live, but righteous character and a desire for more of him, an affection for more of him. But he already knows that this will be difficult for these people. We see that. We see glimpses of it here in this passage two times. In this passage, in verses 15 and 23, he mentions the foreign gods that are among these people. Evidently, they still carry with them the tokens of idol worship that they had picked up back in Egypt and during their years of wilderness wandering in which they encountered lots of different people and, 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 and adopted some of the gods that they worshipped as well. It's a sin which will again and again and again creep into their lives, and it's the sin which God condemns more than any other in Scripture. Because idolatry is humanity's most persistent sinful habit, certainly today as much as in antiquity. Even if it takes a different shape, even if the idols that, are, that, that we worship, that we're tempted to, to sacrifice to today, they may not be carved from stone or wood, but they are real just as much today as they were in antiquity. Idolatry is alluring and enticing because it takes the shape of whatever our hearts desire, and then raises those things up to a divine status. This is idolatry at its heart. It is making gods out of the things that we want, and then looking to those gods for satisfaction and fulfillment and identity. And the problem that these people had and that all of us wrestle with as well is that they thought that they could serve God and keep their idols as well. They said, yes, we will serve the Lord, Joshua. But back in their tents, hidden away were the sinful habits that they clung to in the darkness. They think that they will be able to serve God and these idols, to honor Him and to hold tight to their sin. But God says to them and to all His people in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no, no other, nor my praise to carved idols." He does not share. How often we think the same way that the Israelites did. We say, perhaps in all sincerity, as they evidently did, that our desire is to serve the Lord, all while we tolerate and even revel in sin in our lives that we do not honestly or sincerely fight against. We know that we shouldn't indulge that temptation again, or continue to speak in a way that does not honor the Lord or puts others down, or to cling to money and possessions or career above all else. We're quite good at minimizing the significance of our sins, pretending that they're really not that big of a deal, or justifying our sins, or telling ourselves, well, it's not harmful to anyone, anyone and no one's getting hurt by this thing that I, that I keep doing or to argue that what Scripture clearly teaches about sin is perhaps a, a mistranslation from some, from some ancient uh, you know, editor of Scripture, or a misinterpretation by modern readers of Scripture, or that it's the product of its cultural environment in the ancient Near East that isn't relevant today anymore. We're good, we're very, very good at spinning our sin to look permissible and even good. Because we want to know God, and we want to know His love, we want to know His blessing, we want His affection, but we also want to keep our idols close by. 
but God does not share his glory. He does not share his praise with idols that we bring with us into our relationship with him. He demands everything. His holiness demands perfection. There is no room for even the smallest idol hidden away in the darkest corner. Jesus explained it in Matthew 6 by saying, no one can serve two masters. He's confronting the idea that that someone can serve the Lord and serve idols. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and serve and uh, despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Joshua knows that the people of Israel love their sin just like we do, and so he warns them here. In this passage in chapter 24, he is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. He uses two synonymous words here, sins and transgressions, to make the people understand why God will respond with such intensity, even if he has done them good as he's just spent time explaining to them. Think about all these wonderful things the Lord has done for you. Don't assume that because he has been blessing you in the past and showing you his favor in the past, don't assume that that means that now everything is good, everything's permissible. Don't assume that. If you turn away from him, if you are unfaithful to him, his judgment will be unleashed against you. He uses two words to get that point across. Sin is derived from a word that means missing the mark or or failing to live perfectly. He wants them to know that God will not even ignore lapses of judgment. But transgression suggests willful rebellion. It is intentional and deliberate suppression of truth and the glory of God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1. That is the heart of that Joshua knows is beating in the chest of every single one of these people and every one of us. So Joshua warns them, God will not listen to arguments that minimize the seriousness of sin or that attempt to justify it. He will not say in response to you, well, I guess it's just, that's small. I mean, you know, it's not like you murdered anyone. This is little, you know, this is a little idol. It's hidden away where almost no one can see it, so I guess I'll let it slide. There is no such thing as a half-hearted relationship with God because he does not share his glory. To serve him means to serve him totally, holding nothing back. Anything else, God will answer with unrelenting and overwhelming fury. Joshua does not mince his words here at all. It's meant to startle them, and it should startle us as well. His response to them should have made the people pause, but it doesn't. They're confident in their strength, and they even double down in verse 21, saying, no, but we will. We will. We are able. But the passage contains a second warning, that a relationship with God is a daily and deliberate pursuit. Joshua says to the people, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of Egypt or the Amorites, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, choose this day, not make a choice this day that will, you know, guarantee your affection for the Lord for the rest of your life, but choose this day and choose tomorrow, choose the day after that and choose the day after that and every day that remains to you for the rest of your life. Choose this day whom you will serve. 
The people stand at a crossroads. They must make a choice. There are some people who read this verse and they draw a straight line from Joshua 24 to our current situation as Christians living in America in 2021. And they sort of see in this passage like a William Wallace Braveheart moment, a call to courageously choose God and stand for Him despite all challenges that will come in this life. And while I don't think that that's an unbiblical idea, it certainly is a biblical idea, I don't think that's what Joshua is doing here. He wants these people to consider not a threat that will come from outside, but a threat that is already in each of them. It's a choice either to fight against sin and resist temptation or to succumb to idolatrous tendencies or to obey the word of the Lord. It's a choice that they must make every single day. That's one of the themes of this whole book, actually. The book of Joshua has some powerful examples of this. Early in the book, way back in chapter 2, we're introduced to a woman named Rahab who lived in the city of Jericho. She had heard about the God of the Israelites. She had heard about them and about the nations who had opposed these people. And when some Israelites arrive in the city of Jericho back in chapter 2, she says to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, the land that she lives in and the city of Jericho where she lives. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of this land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan River, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Well before the Israelites arrived in the Promised Land, the report of their miraculous deliverance from slavery in Egypt had arrived. People were talking about the people whose God had overwhelmed the most powerful military force in the world, and swallowed it up in literal waves of his judgment. That news had traveled fast. And now, as the Israelites approach the promised land, they're approaching the city of Jericho where Rahab lives, they've already encountered opposition from those who sought to capture them and enslave them for themselves. But the kings, Sihon and Og, thought, along with everyone else, all these former slaves, they've been wandering in the desert for years. This is going to be like taking candy from a baby. But when they tried, they marched out to meet the Israelites in the wilderness to capture them. They were utterly dismayed and overrun. It was a defeat that was only explainable if Israel's God was fighting for them. And that word had reached Rahab and the people of Jericho too. So when she meets some of the Israelites that Joshua has sent to check out the city, she says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted in fear. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab knew the God of Israel had revealed himself in might and glory. And in faith, she turned toward him. She inclined her heart toward the Lord. When her city fell to the Israelites, as she knew that it would, she was grafted into the people of God. She became a worshiper of their God and one of God's people by faith. She was, in fact, so woven into the people of God that she became a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. 
Rahab made a choice. Seeing that her situation was utterly hopeless to stand against this God, to to, to rely on her strength and the strength of her city, she said, I I don't think that that is going to stand a chance. The only chance that I have is to cast myself entirely on the mercy of your God. And so she did. She saw her hopelessness and she turned toward God with a plea for mercy. But not long afterward, the book of Joshua tells another story about a man named Achan who was, unlike Rahab, an Israelite by birth. From childhood, Achan saw the majesty of God every single day of his life. He saw the the way that the Lord provided for his people in the wilderness. He saw the way that the Lord provided victory for them over over vastly larger and more well-trained and well-equipped armies. He saw these things every day of his life. He was there to see all of those miraculous victories, but once after one of those victories, he saw some valuable items lying in the rubble, and he knew that God had commanded his people not to take the spoils of war for themselves, but he could not resist. He snuck them into his tent, and he buried them, a cloak, a bunch of silver coins, and a gold bar. In that moment, Achan chose to reject the word of God and succumb to his selfishness. Afterward, he faces severe judgment and loses his life. Looking back, over his time leading the people of Israel, Joshua remembers these two people, Rahab and Achan, and the choices that each of them made. And as he does, he compels his people standing before him in Shechem to realize that they too must choose whether to turn toward or away from God. He warns them, saying in verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, that he will turn and do you harm and consume you. There is no middle ground. They cannot compartmentalize, honoring Him with one part of their lives while clinging to sin in another part of their lives. They must choose. And Joshua knows that it is an every single day, every hour of every day demand. Jesus would later explain in Luke 9 that to follow Him, a person must deny himself and take up his cross daily and then follow Him. It's a call to deny sinful desire, to put it to death every single day, and then follow after Christ. Achan lost his life over one bad choice, a moment of weakness. The margin for error is razor thin, and these people are weak. And if we're honest, so are we. Like Achan, we know God's command, but we struggle to keep it. In moments of weakness, we fall to temptation, let pride or greed or lust or anger take over. Joshua sees that in these people, and we see it in ourselves, if we're honest. So he tells them, he he commands them, serve the Lord and choose Him rather than giving in to the temptations that he knows they'll face, but he seems to know that they will fail. When they reassure him in verse 21, saying, no, but we will serve the Lord, He replies to them by writing the words of this promise in a book and even setting up a monument for them all to see. He knows that they will be prone to forget or to neglect this thing that they've committed themselves to. So this book and this stone are there to remind them of their promise and the consequences of breaking it. And then he says right at the end in verse 27 that the stone itself will be a witness against you lest you deal falsely with your God. He anticipates that a day will come, not long from now, when these people will fail. 
Joshua 27 is the conclusion of a high point, perhaps the highest point in the history of these people. God delivered them from slavery, preserved them in the wilderness, and now He has given them a land that is their inheritance, the inheritance of a promise that He had made to their forefathers. They're riding high, witnessing the Lord's provision, and committing themselves to fidelity and faithfulness to Him in return. But Joshua suspects what history will bear out. Even this, listen to this, even those with the clearest vision of God's faithfulness, with the most compelling reasons to trust Him and follow Him and serve Him, even those with the words of their covenant with God preserved for them and displayed for them, who had seen with their own eyes all of the miraculous, magnificent things that God had done to prove His faithfulness to them, even these people with the most compelling reasons to remain faithful to, to this God, even these people failed. Even these people would, within just a few years, turn away from God altogether in pursuit of sin and idolatry, abandoning their promises to Him. And looking at them, considering them, thinking about the heart that's beating in every single one of their chests, we begin to see ourselves. We are people just like them who may have committed to follow the Lord, but who fumble and fail to do it very well at all. Because even when we look around at our neighbors and think, well, maybe I'm doing pretty well here, even if we have that thought, right? We look around and say, I mean, generally speaking, I'm doing pretty well. This passage is a warning and a reminder that God's standard is perfection. There's no margin for error. This whole chapter, Joshua 24, the startling words of this, of this uh, final address from Joshua to his people, when he tells them, you are not able to do this thing that you are called and commanded to do, leaves us longing for God's answer to this problem, longing for the grace that some, like Rahab, sought and found. It's a reminder that even a sincere commitment to follow and honor God cannot stand the test of time or run the gauntlet of temptations when it stands alone and on its own strength. This passage reminds us that if we lay on our shoulders the burden of overcoming sin, or slaying false gods, and casting the idols of our day out of our lives, we may have initial success. We may succeed in overcoming certain sinful habits that we have, but we will shortly fail to rise to the standard of perfection that God demands and that God's holiness demands. But God does not leave His people crushed under a burden that is too heavy for us to carry. Instead, He has sent His Son to carry that burden, to put on His back the weight of our failures our sins and our transgressions. He has borne it and suffered the wrath of God for it, that swift and severe wrath which was promised to those who turn away from God and being faithful to Him. So now, by faith, His perfect life is counted as ours. His righteousness is counted as ours. His obedience to God's will is counted as ours. Joshua 24, 19 reminds us that none of us, even the most sincere, even those who seem to have their lives put together, none of us can bear the burden. But the amazing grace of Christ is that He does. And more than atoning for sin, His sacrifice redeems His people from bondage to it. 
In Christ, we are made into the people that we have been called and commanded to be. He does this work. So the call of Joshua 24 is a call to abandon the delusion that any can serve the Lord on our own strength and to stand in the strength of Christ. When he was challenged at one point in his ministry for spending time with those who were described as sinners and tax collectors, those who were outcasts in society because of their sinful lifestyles, Jesus replies to that criticism by saying, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who claim, far be it from me that I should turn away from the Lord, are not at the table with him. Jesus' heart was for those who are shattered and who know it, who know that apart from the mercy of the Lord, their situation is hopeless, and who know that it will only be by the application of that mercy that they will be, ever be anything but a slave to sin. So Joshua tells his people, incline your heart to the Lord. Put your trust in him. And that is my prayer for us this morning that we would be people who stand not on our own strength, but on Christ's strength, who don't attempt to carry a burden that is too heavy for any of us to carry anyway, but who look to Christ who carries it for us, who do not claim, as the Israelites did, that we are able to live up to the faithfulness of God, but who cry out for deliverance and mercy and receive it abundantly in the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who then holds us close. By His power, He holds us close. If we are ever to fear the Lord and serve Him with everything, every single day, it will not be because we have trained ourselves well, but because He holds us close. So let us incline our hearts to Him today and every day. Would you pray with me? Father God, you are robed in majesty and worthiness to be praised and honored. But we know that we cannot measure up. We know that even our best days and our most sincere efforts to serve you are stained with sin. So we ask you to do what we cannot, to make us a faithful people who are redeemed by the saving work of Christ and held close to you by your enduring faithfulness to us. We incline our hearts to you today and every day. We ask, Lord, that you would draw us close and hold us fast. Cause us to grow into the men and women of righteous character that you call us and command us to be. Lord, we pray this morning in hope and confidence in the name of your Son. Amen.